So it was pretty smoky in here earlier. I just turned the fans on, which also makes it breezy, <laughs> but less smoky. So there's a trade-off there. Um, and we can turn them down once it seems to have cleared. But uh, is, is this okay for everyone? It's a little cold. I feel it too. There are blankets on either side. You might grab one. And then, Jaime, if you're back there, maybe you could just turn it down a little bit because I think it did, it's already cleared out some of that smoke. Um, like I mentioned earlier, this, this is a working monastery. And um, uh, those of you who come in and, and notice the, the incense smell, our group is actually held right after what is, in fact, called the incense ceremony. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> so we just have, have a, a relationship with that. <laughs> but uh, it was a little smokier than usual, so we'll... Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Jaime. <clears throat> so I think I've I've mentioned here before and I've uh recently mentioned it at Spirit Rock during a, a talk I gave recently that uh, it just seems like every time I put on the news something horrific is happening in the world and um, it, it seems bigger than, than usual because I think I'm coming in and out of um, uh, just being a new mom and being kind of in this baby zone and then I get my car and put on NPR and it's just the contrast is intense and often I'm listening to NPR on my way here. This is like this is the only time I'm alone in my car these days. <laughs> so this is it. This is my news time. <laughs> so I get something like twenty to fifteen minutes of news time on the way here. And uh, and I don't know why I keep listening to it because <laughs> it's just it's very disturbing. Um, yeah, it's it's been really rough, hasn't it? This past year and years before that, um, I I just think the amount of uh, anger, hate, um, violence, harmfulness um, around in different places in the world, it's global, we're seeing it really globally, but I think uh, in this country, it's, there's, there's a sickness that is really, um, uh, I, I feel is really coming to life and showing itself in in a way that uh, is very sad to be in contact with. It's hard to be in contact with it. I've had two different friends uh, who this in this past year had gone on these epic uh, travel journeys. Um, one to South America and traveled throughout South America. The other to Nepal, um, India, Africa, um, several different countries in Africa, and I feel like one other place, Australia perhaps. And both of them, interestingly, came back and had the same comment about what it's like to be back, Uh, one being gone for six months, the other nine months, coming back to the U.S. and certainly culture shock, being back, but also um, their comments were, 
everybody seems angry. One friend said, everyone just seems so angry here. And the other friend said something very similar, that everyone seems a little more aggressive. And um, uh, what was the word she used? It wasn't angry, but in that, in that mm, ballpark, uh, people just seem, seem aggressive and angry here. And so when we're in it, maybe we don't notice it so much, but I thought that was very interesting that both of them, on not knowing each other or sharing this together, they both said something along the same lines. So what do we, what do, we do about that? Well, uh, the Buddha had something to say about that. There's this amazing quote by him that relates directly, and you'll find it familiar because I believe many of our um, peace warriors historically have used some form of this, this quote. In this world, hate does not dispel hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away. Knowing this, how can you quarrel? It's a really powerful statement to use love, this word love. Love is what dispels hate. And we we know this. We've heard this before in different ways. But he is pointing out that this is an ancient and inexhaustible law. This is a law of, of nature. It's not a Buddhist law. It's not, a, uh, it's not Buddhist. It is, it is just a truth that goes way beyond uh, Buddhism. And then gives us a warning. Uh, you too shall pass away. He's warning us that uh, life is fleeting. And the time to actually develop and cultivate this love in response to the aggression, uh, aversiveness, the hatred, the violence, all of these different forms that seem to be the opposite of love, we only have so much time to use this life in the service of something else, really in the service of freedom. And so this word love actually has a very prominent place in the Buddhist practice. And yet, uh, it kind of has a bad rap at the same time (laughs) in Buddhism. We don't hear the word love so much. And I think some of the reason for this is because of translation and also just our cultural understanding of love, of what love actually means. So I want to explore that with you all. I think that this word love, some of us it seems pretty, it might be really simple and very clear what that word might mean in a spiritual practice such as Buddhism. And for others, I imagine the word love brings in all kinds of thoughts and maybe emotions, different connotations with this word that may be pleasant or unpleasant uh, depending on your relationship with it. And what I find is that generally... um, in our culture at this point of t- in time, we have a very strange idea of what love is. 
And that word is thrown around a lot to mean many different things that actually, in its truest essence, uh, is nowhere near um, uh, what it actually is. So I, I, I'm hoping that as, we, as I talk about this, that perhaps um, you explore your own relationship with this word and how it works in a spiritual practice such as, as this. I think for some, this word is complicated because we tie it in with different complications in our life where maybe there's been relationships where we've used the word love or felt that we were in love and they didn't go quite right. Or love seems like a lot of work or maybe something unattainable. I think that love is misrepresented a lot of the time, especially in different forms of media. So oftentimes when we're watching movies or shows or some, some kind of media, um, it's represented more as uh, infatuation, this love infatuation, being infatuated with somebody. And this is sometimes dubbed as love in our culture, but is actually really far from it. In fact, if you think about what is it that has us uh, in that state of, of infatuation, what, what is it that we're actually looking for and in, in needing in that moment? Oftentimes, it's, it has something more to do with ourself than the other person. Uh, that it actually has something to do with not feeling whole within ourself and looking for something to fill that wholeness outside of ourself. And so in that way, oftentimes that infatuation is us um, actually uh, becoming distracted or trying to even distract ourselves from our own suffering. It's a means of coping sometimes. Uh, and not to have to be with the discomfort of perhaps feeling not so whole or lovable or um, feeling like there's something missing that it must be coming from this, this other person can fill that, this infatuation. But it doesn't really have to do with the other person so much a lot of the time, I find... Um, in fact, the connection that's felt is often very superficial. And when we get to know the person a little bit better and that bubble gets popped, it can be very disappointing. Love is oftentimes also uh, portrayed as conditional. This, this conditional relationship in which we are loving each other. If you are this way and I am this way, then we can be in love. And of course, uh, we can call that love, but it diminishes the power of what real love is, what true love is. Love is not conditional. Including the love for ourself is not conditional. Can we love another and love ourself 
even when things are uncomfortable or not going the way that we want them to go. And if, that's, if it's not true, then it's something else. It's not love. And then finally, in our culture, we, we love to say that we love things that we don't actually love. I love pizza. <laughs> well, we don't love pizza. <laughs> we might really like pizza, but we don't love pizza. And so even in our way of using the word, um, often we, we should be careful about that. And I'm, I, I do this quite often, actually. I catch myself using it in this way, and it does. It diminishes what is truly love. And so what is truly love? Uh, I was reading an article earlier this week by Gil Fransdell, and, um, who is a meditation teacher, very, very respected, also a scholar uh, of Buddhism. And uh, he has a very large group on the peninsula, and I greatly respect him and his practice and his teachings. And he wrote this short article on love and the Buddhist path, And he starts it by saying, and I'll paraphrase it, he starts it by saying that the Buddhist path is often um, said to be a path of freedom. And that it could also be said said that the Buddhist path is the path, path of love. And that freedom and love in this tradition are the same thing. I thought that was an interesting statement. That's a really strong statement to say that freedom and love are the same thing. What about clinging? Because we also talk about that a lot in this tradition. That we're trying to release the mind and the heart from, uh, from the habit of clinging clinging to things. And when I think of love, then, you know, it's almost synonymous in my mind sometimes with clinging. If we love something, then we want to we wanna hang on to it and keep it just as it is and for ourselves, and have it mean something to us. And what he's saying is, oh, you might do that, but it's not love if that's what you're doing. That love is something separate from clinging, it's something larger than that. The clinging is just a habit in the mind that we sometimes get stuck into uh, when we are experiencing love. The mind goes, ooh, <laughs> I want that, <laughs> which is unnecessary and actually just causes a lot of stress and a lot of uh, dukkha or suffering. So it's separate from that. So love and clinging, two different things. Interesting. Have you ever had a relationship that didn't involve clinging, but did involve love? It's just something to think about. The answer might be no. (laughs) It's such a strong human habit. It's not your habit, it's a human habit that when we are experiencing love, or even when we think this might be it, this might be love, we cling on to it. We get clingy, we get needy, we, the wanting starts to come in, 
the not wanting starts to come in, depending on the personality that you're with. So what Gil is pointing to is that this is actually not love in the sense of how it's used in, in a uh, free, enlightened way. So imagine the heart um, being caged. And we do this. We, we've learned. We've learned. It's not something we've done on our own. We've learned how to cage our heart and our ability to love. And we do it in many different ways, but one of the ways is to associate love with with clinging and being able to hang on to something. We do it with our sense of control, uh, feeling like we can control uh, our outcomes and control uh, relationships, control ourselves (laughs) in terms of... uh, uh, who we are, trying to deny the parts of ourselves that we don't really like and would rather not be seen even by us. And so we create this cage, this prison for ourselves. We've learned it. It's been learned, but we do it. Each of us individually, we do it ourselves. And so what we're doing in this practice is learning to release and let go and actually be free of these cages that we've created for ourselves. To not depend on them anymore, not be afraid to not use them anymore. It's scary to think about love in this way or freedom in this way. It's unbounded. There's something comforting to have that cage, to be... Um, to have our walls up, or however you want to think of it, to be actually kind of limited, or very limited, uh, in this way. There's something kind of cozy and comforting about that. We kind of like our suffering to some degree. Otherwise, we would be on the hot path (laughs) to get rid of it if we uh, didn't find it cozy in some way. It's interesting to think of it in this way. But what this this path is asking us to do is to come out of that um, illusion of security that we've created and that we share with each other and come into something much greater, come into something much more open and certainly more free than this small cage self that we've created, this small cage that we've created around our heart and our mind. So in this tradition, love then is synonymous with freedom, uh, being unbounded by the habits and the ignorance in our mind. We sometimes use the word a boundless heart when we talk about the heart practices in this tradition. A boundless heart. No boundaries. Not uh, shining our, our love or our understanding 
on one particular person or event and keeping it closed from another person or event. That's, there's something scary about that, to be that open. Can we actually do that? Well, because this is a practice and it's something that is unfolding through a sense of time, we can be assured that uh, this unfolding, it doesn't happen unless we are actually mentally ready for it uh, and that our heart is ready for it. And so all the bits and pieces of our practice that come together over the years is actually in service to the releasing of this cage that we have around our heart. It melts gently and it melts slowly so that when it is time to really just let go of it, we're ready for it. We're actually, we might have some fear in the moment, but we're really actually ready for that. And so everything we do in this practice is in service to that. So one of the uh, lists that we often talk about in, in Buddhism are the hindrances. And I was thinking about this love and what it is not and how um, when it's corrupted, often we can find one or more or all of the hindrances involved in that corruption and how we're perceiving that love. So one of the, the first hindrances is aversion. So that hatred, it's, it really is the opposite. When we're feeling averse, there is no room for the feeling of boundless heart, um, the feeling of connection, of understanding. Um, there's just no room for it. So we, I think it's easy to see how love is not aversion. I think we can feel that even, that aversion is this very tight kind of pushing away where we would think love is this more open um, uh, allowing for the moment or the person to be there. So there's this real polar opposite feel between the aversion and love. But then uh, the, the other ones, I don't know that it is always so clear. So when there's wanting in the mind, when we have uh, this craving, this wanting in the mind, whether um, it's for, for a particular something within ourselves that we're wanting more of because we love that about ourselves, or it's another person that we're, we're really wanting, whether it's friendship or um, romantic relationship, if it's a family member, that, that clinging, that wanting uh, really taints True love, unconditional love. Because suddenly there is, there is condition there when there's that wanting. And what if they don't show it back, for example? What if, um, what if they don't want our love? When we have the hindrance of wanting in the mind, it's so easily, it's so fragile our hearts and our minds get so fragile and brittle that when it's denied, uh, it, it gets hurt really easily because that wanting is coming from this place of 
me, 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 me. <laughs> Which is a really fragile state to be in. For most of us, that is our natural state, or not our natural state, but our usual state, is that me, 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 me. How does this relate to me? How is this going to become mine? What does this mean about me? And so this wanting really feeds that fragileness, supports that fragileness, and so we get really hurt when it's denied. So this, of course, is not the true love that I'm talking about. A anxious or restless state related to love. That anxiety that sometimes arises, the discomfort with just being who we are or being in the moment with another person. When things are uncertain, sometimes this anxiety arises. Our mind goes in 20 different directions about how is this going to go? Am I wasting my time? Can I really be with this person? What do they think about me? (laughs) How is this related to me? And the anxiety takes over. This is not true love. It's anxiety. (laughs) But we can link it to this feeling of love or this relationship of what real love is. But really, it's just been tainted with this anxiety, this anxiousness. Uncertainty or confusion or doubt is another hindrance that I think um, is really common when in relationship and when we are perhaps experiencing love. Sometimes it's so new when we really, sometimes we're in fact experiencing love, that connection, that openness, and we're so uncomfortable with it that we just tumble forward into doubt. Uh, We tumble into uncertainty, questioning whether this is real, questioning, should I really, do I deserve this? Should I really be experiencing this? Tumbling into what is everyone else going to think? You know, the mind does all these really tricky things. And again, these are just very fragile states we find ourselves in. So even in the face of real, true love, and I'm using that, remember, in, as synonymous with a state that is free. This is not really, um, not really talking about emotional love, but more of a state of freedom in relationship to life or even to another person or to ourself. But we find that so strange when we experience it that it's very easily, it turns into this doubt. And then the last one, which I had to really think about, was um, traditionally is sloth and torpor. But we could call it laziness where we um, start to take uh, things for granted. Maybe we've experienced this this open heart. Maybe you've experienced it on retreat. I know that I have, where I've been on retreat and the heart just opens. 
and there's this ease to it. I don't have to try very hard, and it's just so real and, and amazing, and I can feel really free in, in those times. And then I come home, and that might last for a little while, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. <laughs> I think, well, I don't really need to sit. I've got this going on. <laughs> and then next thing I know, I'm tumbling into one of the other hindrances pretty quickly. And so we, we can take for granted um, this, this freedom when we taste it. That, oh, I've got it now. There's nothing more to do. But uh, actually, even the Buddha continued to practice and sit every single day. And he was uh, already apparently enlightened and as free as you can get. And he still, he still practiced. What's up with that? So there is something with that. Um, that we, we have to be careful that we don't fall into this sloth and torpor, this laziness around our experiences of love and freedom. And so when, when love is taught in this tradition, it's usually taught through the Brahma Viharas. So when we want to cultivate love, it's taught through the Brahma Viharas. And I want to read you something here. This is a really sweet book that I think I bought this for my husband on Valentine's Day a number of years ago. It says, How to Love by Thich Nhat Hanh. Anybody, anybody read this? Is anyone familiar with this? This is the sweetest book. I haven't picked it up since. And um, now that my reading time is about this is about right <laughs> this is about what what i've got time for a little bit every day um i've just been really enjoying it it's, it's um a beautiful book about exactly this what what is true love and how do we relate to that in this practice and what he's done so beautifully is let us know how do we relate to this in this practice as lay people also um so he, he, here's a piece from this book. It's called Heart Like a River. If you pour a handful of salt into a cup of water, the water becomes undrinkable. But if you pour the salt into a river, people can continue to draw the water to cook, wash, and drink. The river is immense, and it has the capacity to receive embrace, and transform. When our hearts are small, our understanding and compassion are limited, and we suffer. So that's that that caged heart that I was talking about. We can't accept or tolerate others and their shortcomings, and we demand that they change. And this is coming from our, our own insecurities, that fragileness, But when our hearts expand and these same things don't make us suffer anymore, we have a lot of understanding and compassion and can embrace others. We accept others as they are, and then they have the chance to transform. So the big question is, how do we help our hearts to grow? And so this is how we help our hearts to grow. Uh, in Buddhism, we talk about the Brahma Viharas. 
so the Brahma Viharas are the abodes of the heart. Uh, and these are Metta, Karuna, Mudita, Upeka. So Metta is the Pali word for loving kindness. Uh, Upeka, or sorry, Metta, Karuna is compassion, Mudita is sympathetic joy, and Upeka is equanimity. These states, these are not emotions. These are states of being. These are states of love or states of freedom, a free heart and mind. They are the natural states of our heart and mind when we are not uh, engaged in that um, clinging, uh, engaged in our own ignorance, um, when we have imprisoned our, our mind and our heart. So these are states of freedom. The heart naturally unfolds in this way as either being uh, loving kind uh, or a friendly. Loving kindness is kind of a friendliness, a friendliness to to all beings, all of these. The the aspiration is to be have them be able to radiate radiate to all beings. And so this friendliness, this ability for the heart to just be in contact with each other without any barriers, uh, without trying to be something, uh, without um, trying to have someone else be something other than they are. Just this real acceptance, this understanding of our own suffering and so the understanding of others suffering and that there can be this friendliness and acceptance because of that. So this is metta, the the feeling of metta. And then from there, depending on what's arising, uh, the heart may go to compassion or karuna. Karuna or compassion, this is the heart's response uh, in the face of suffering. So when we hear these horrific things happening on the news, Or perhaps we have a conversation with a friend and she's telling us um, the sadness that's going on in her life. Uh, Or even reflecting on what's going on for us. Maybe right now you're going through a lot of suffering. Can the heart move into compassion or does it move into judgment or aversion? I just can't, can't hear any more of this. The heart that is free naturally moves into compassion. You don't even have to think about it. You don't have to train yourself at that point. It naturally goes into compassion. So in the same way, when we see the happiness of others, the heart moves into mudita, or sympathetic joy, to be able to share the joy with somebody else. So instead of feeling um, jealousy, for example, oh, they always get what they want, or their life looks so good, or they must be such a good meditator. They look so still, and they've just got it all together, and here I am on my sad little cushion. And, <laughs> I mean, that's the heart closing on, in on itself, that fragile state. So when the heart is not fragile, it's strong, it's free, and we see, oh, wow, look at the happiness of that person, we immediately go to mudita. Oh, they're having this success in their life. I'm so happy for them. And to really feel that. So again, we're sharing in this connection, this non-separateness. And then upeka holds it all. 
and this equanimity. And it's not a cold equanimity of whatever or, um, you know, sometimes we can get um, this idea that equanimity is just this, this very nonchalant, what happens is what happens and there's nothing to be done. You know, that's not equanimity. Equanimity is from the heart. It's a heart practice. There's a feeling of connection. There isn't a feeling of separation. The heart is completely open, open and able to hold everything in balance because it understands in a very deep way that things are just as they are and that that fact doesn't separate us but actually connects us in a very deep way. And so we can practice and cultivate these Brahma Viharas and there's different practices for each one. And you know, Usually throughout the year I, I give a talk or James gives a talk on each one of these. Um, and so this is a way to cultivate love in our practice. And because uh, it's really much easier to say that I I could love all beings. Maybe we've even experienced it. Like again, when uh, being on retreat or um, maybe even just sitting out and watching an amazing sunset and you're just feeling the connection to life or something like that where you really truly feel I could really love all beings, unbounded, unconditional. It might be really true in that moment. And then you've got to come back home (laughs) from your retreat or from your sunset and interact with your family members. You go to work, interacting with your colleagues. Um, Maybe it's just sitting in traffic or walking down the street. Uh, And that's where our practice of love really gets put to the test, is in, in relation to other people. And so the practices of the Brahma Viharas, uh, they actually acknowledge that this is not so easy to do. And so the development of these Brahma Viharas actually don't start with all beings necessarily. Um, There are practices that start you with different categories. And so the first category, interestingly, is for ourself. And so you go through each Brahma Vihara directing it to yourself. And so that's interesting, too, that um, here's this practice we, we think of, um, I think a lot of the times with Buddhism, um, the, the aspiration as, of being the bodhisattva, um, someone who is here for the awakening of all beings before, before yourself. So there's emphasis on selflessness, and for some reason in our culture, we get this sense that, oh, if I direct love and kindness and compassion to myself, well, that's just greedy. There's, that's a lot of, that's kind of selfish. Uh, that's not what the Buddha taught. In fact, um, he says that searching all directions with one's awareness, one finds none dearer than oneself. And then he goes on to say why this is important and that you yourself, is n- you are not separated 
from all beings. You know, sometimes we, we think all beings, we, we leave ourselves out. We kind of think of everybody else, but we leave ourselves out. And he's really directing our attention to this fact that, no, 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 we're, we're part of that. We are part of all beings. So directing to ourself, we are, there, are n- n- there will be no one more dear. And then he says, in this way, others are fiercely dear to themselves. So as you look around, and so do this, take a look around and just take that in, that each one of these people, uh, are, they are fiercely dear to themselves. And so knowing that for yourself, knowing that for others, he says that one should not hurt another if one loves oneself. So with that understanding of how dear and precious you are and knowing that everybody is precious and dear to themselves, how could you hurt another? It's essentially the teaching here. And so with the practice of the Brahma Viharas and the practice of cultivating this love and free, free heart, we start with ourself. And this is usually the hardest category for most of us. Um, and so we may spend a lot of time on that first category. And that's okay. That's where we need to bring our attention. And then it goes from there to a benefactor. This is someone who's benefited us. Uh, so that's a little easier Then it goes to the next category, which is friend. And the Buddha talked a lot about friendship and spiritual friendship. Um, This idea of community being a really important part of our practice, that we sit as individuals on these cushions and we get this idea that we are somehow kind of in our own bubble in this practice. But actually, to have a full spiritual practice, we need the strength and the wisdom of community. There's a very popular story that often gets told about Ananda. Ananda was the Buddha's attendant and a favorite character in the teachings of the Buddha because he was very imperfect. Um, He often made the mistakes and had the misunderstanding that many of us have on, on our path. But Ananda also had this incredible sense of generosity and uh, an incredible heart. And that shows uh, throughout, throughout the stories of the Buddha. And so one day, Ananda comes up to the Buddha, and he, so you get the sense that he feels like he's got something figured out. And he says, he kind of declares to the Buddha uh, that half the spiritual life is spiritual friendship. So he's made this statement. And then you can imagine the Buddha now turns to him and says, do not say this, Ananda. (laughs) So he's just, don't say this, Ananda. He says, spiritual friendship is the entire spiritual life. So the Buddha is correcting him, saying that, um, no, these friendships, this this is everything. I think in this statement, what he's pointing to is this love that I'm, that I'm talking about. That this, this connection with each other in this unbounded way, um, that our friends that we practice that with are so valuable in our process of waking up, that we actually need each other uh, in this process of waking up and freeing the heart. 
And so then from there, the category goes to neutral people. These are people that often go unnoticed by us. We don't consider them as someone we necessarily need to practice the Brahma Viharas with. It might be the person who handed you your coffee at Starbucks or checked you out on, in the uh, checkout line uh, at the grocery store. Um, so these are, are people that we come in contact with but maybe um, often don't think a lot about. And so this is a really important and can be a very rich place to strengthen our ability to actually stay open to all beings everywhere. And then this all leads down to the difficult person, which is the last, which actually, when it's translated from the Pali, I believe directly it's enemy. It's stated as your enemy, um, so whether you feel like you have an enemy or not, uh, this, is, this is the difficult person category. I'm sure we all have a difficult person in there. And um, it being the difficult person, this, is, this may be truly the ultimate test of how free is our heart. And it's not a test to feel bad about failing, <laughs> We might have to fail that test over and over and over again. But that's part of the practice. It's part of the practice. It'd be like, um, you know, getting down on yourself for, or getting down on a, a little kid who's learning to ride their bike. And they fall, and they fall, and they fall, and then all of a sudden they're doing it. But it's wobbly, and it's not so comfortable. And then over time, it's just become something they don't even have to think about. And so in that way, we wouldn't get down on ourselves for uh, failing to love the difficult person. You know, it takes time, it takes practice, it takes intention, it takes cultivation. And so we can do that, though. We can do that through these practices. Uh, Ajahn Chah, who was a um, revered teacher, uh, Buddhist teacher in Thailand, Actually, many of the teachers in this tradition uh, come from, from his lineage or have practiced in his lineage. And um, he has a famous quote where he says that, and I, I relate this to the difficult person because sometimes some of these categories we feel like, oh, I just, I'm never going to get there. I'm not even going to bother. Or that person, I'm just, you know, I've gotten this far, but I, I'm just not even going to bother with that person. <laughs> I don't even think they deserve it. Right. So he says this. He says, let go a little and have a little peace. Let go a lot and you will have a lot of peace. But if you let go completely, you will have complete peace. So remember what I said at the beginning, that we're, we kind of like our little patch of suffering. There's something comforting about it. And so there can be this tendency of, oh, I'll just let go a little, and then I'll have a little peace, and that's pretty good, right? And it sounds good maybe in the moment, but we're going to hit that suffering eventually. And how ready are we for it? Will we know how to hold it? Will we know how to move through it in a way that doesn't cause harm to ourselves and to others? 
can we aspire to something greater? Can we aspire to really, truly, fully releasing the mind and the heart? Could we live a life of this unbounded love? What would that even look like? Who would we be if that was, if that was us? Is that possible? And so what I love about this practice is that it says, yes, that is possible. The Buddha was not uh, anything other than a man. He was a human. He's not a god. Um, he's depicted sometimes as that, um, but in this tradition, that's not how it's seen. It's not how the teachings are, go. This was someone who was a man who woke up. And then in his wake, there were many people, men, women, uh, even some youngsters that were able to wake up as well and free themselves. And so just to imagine that for yourself in this moment, what would that actually look like in my current circumstance? Can we aspire to that? And that's something you can only answer. Okay, so I'm going to stop there. We have maybe time for one or two questions or comments, if you have any comments. And we'll just run the mic around so that um, not only so that everyone here can hear, but um, this is recorded and is put up on Dharma Seed. Thanks, Carrie. Thanks for a great talk. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I struggle with is when you say "let it go." Is um, for some th- some somehow my mind tells me that if I let go, that I'm going to be attacked by something. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's that's gonna that's hard, even though it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. You know, because what are you going to be attacked by? You know. Mm-hmm. But um, somehow subconsciously, it's telling me that. M- no, be careful. Always be careful. Yeah. You know, always sense. Always think about it, and you cannot just let go. So I just wanted to know how how you dealt with this. Yeah, yeah. I definitely have experienced that. I think it's such a common experience when we are inclining towards this this openness and letting go. And one way to work with it is to to reframe it and to look at what is actually happening here. And so our mind is, it's actually very sweet. It's very confused, but it's sweet in that it wants to protect. It wants to protect. And so this cage that we've built is really, is not actually to harm ourselves. It's actually to protect ourselves. That's very sweet. It's just uh, misdirected. <laughs> There's just, it's coming from uh, ignorance, which is the word that's often used in this tradition. Just not understanding And so what happens is we see that tendency and the fear arises. Whenever that fear arises, it's coming from that place. But then there's something else, and you named it. There's something else that can come in, especially over time and with experience through this practice. Something else comes in, and and it says something like, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense anymore. Or, I think it's okay. Or, oh, this is old. This isn't, this isn't actually real. This is old stuff. I don't need that, that level of protection anymore. It's going to be okay. And so 
what we have to be careful of is that when we do see the protection come in, that we don't turn to hate it. Because that can be, um, it can be easy to do because we, we can get really frustrated by it or even further confused by it. Doubt can arise. Um, the, the, the fragileness of the mind can come in with uh, doubt and um, even the anxiety or restlessness. Uh, so we just have to be aware of how are we relating to that habit of mind that arises, that protective confused self that arises can we love it so it becomes the object for our love and our openness and our compassion oh yeah this is you know there's been old hurts here there's there's just some confusion here oh i learned this from my mother you know there can be all sorts of things that that reside in that in that cage uh to just to, to protect the, the vulnerability of what it is to be really that open and to let go into that. So just that gentleness as you, as you move forward with it is really key. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe one more, if there is one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Here, speak into this so that everyone can hear. Thank uh, you. Thank you again for the, the talk. That was really. Um, yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned doubt as being one of the four um, states that can, um, I don't know, hinder. I guess mm-hmm. the five and, hindrances. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we talked about these other states to cultivate. I guess, uh, and I'm wondering. I don't know if there's like a specific one-to-one <laughs> solution, <laughs> but for the for the doubting um, side of of love, what are good practices other than the awareness for that mm-hmm. um, that you may suggest? Yeah. Um, so just to be really brief, but actually, if if doubt is one that's coming up, uh, there's. If you go on Dharma Seed, there's a whole talks. I've given talks on it because it's something I've struggled with in the past um, and still struggle with sometimes. Um, so there's, there's more to be said than what I'm about to say is what I'm saying. But um, in terms of this, this love and when, it, when doubt arises and how to really work with it, doubt is the trickiest one. Doubt's the trickiest hindrance because... It's hard to see. Um, there are similes to the hindrances, uh, all of them involving water, and uh, water being somehow um, uh, tainted in some way where you can't see clearly through. And so with doubt, it's water that's really cloudy. And not only that, but it's in a dark room. So you can't even see it. <laughs> so it's really hard to work with. And so I think the best way to work with doubt is to really get to know it. When it arises and you catch it, not to just go, oh, that was doubt, but to actually sit down, stop what you're doing, and give it a lot of attention to get to know it really well so that when it arises again, you know it. So actually mindfulness and being really mindful of it 
uh, is, is a wonderful antidote to doubt. Just, just become an expert in doubt. <laughs> and uh, I've found for myself that it's so much quicker. It's just, you can see it. Oh, even see it arising. Oh, here it comes. I can feel it coming on, this doubt. And uh, then you're not caught by it anymore. It's not going to fool you anymore. Yeah. Okay. So we'll stop there. Thank you for your questions. And um, I'll dedicate the merit. So we take time to dedicate the time that we spend together in practice and in listening and exploring the Dharma, acknowledging that this is a really wholesome thing to do and that it is um, something that we usually come for to better ourselves. But the, the truth is that it's, it'll never be for ourselves. It has an effect. Um, it has a ripple effect that goes out into the world in a way that we can't even really understand. So when we cultivate this practice together, um, we carry it with us when we leave this place. And it affects the people that we care about, the people who we don't notice so much, our neutral people, even our difficult people. It affects them. And it affects, it affects the world that we live in. You could think of it as the opposite of destruction and hatred and aversion uh, of these things that are out in the world. We're doing the opposite. So we want to dedicate um, the goodness, anything that comes out of this, to, to all beings everywhere. So may all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings have happiness and contentment in their lives. May all beings have health in their mind and in their body. May all beings uh, find a path towards more freedom in their mind and in their heart. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.